Thank you. Turn with me again, if your Bibles aren't open, to Luke chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 45 to 47, and then verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. So starting with verse 45 of uh, chapter 20. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. And so he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For, out, for all these, out of the abundance, have put in offerings to God. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all the livelihood she had. Brothers and sisters, in less than 50 years, most of us will have to stand before the Lord. Agreed? In 50 years, I'll be 97. I'm pretty sure I'm not making it to 97. Some of you might. Some of you will defy the odds, although I've read recently there's uh, like more than 2 million Americans over the age of 100 now. So people are living a little bit longer, but generally speaking, most of us in here, somewhere 30, 40, 50 years max, just looking at the most of the ages, some of the younger people have a good bit longer than that, but most of us that are in our late 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, we're not that far away, relatively speaking. It, you can remember you being in high school not long ago, right? And here you are, taking Tylenol, taking a leave, <laughs> right? You used to do it after, like, really long workouts for an entire week. Now you do it after a 10-minute workout or something. But it was not that long that we'll be standing before the Lord. And the question is this. If Jesus was going to give a quick little synopsis of your life, like he does the scribes here, or a quick synopsis of your life, like he looks at this widow, what would he say? What would he say to everybody else? In the hearing of everybody else, if he say, this is my assessment of Tim's life. This is my assessment of Bill's life or Joe's life. Or your life. He gives a brief little assessment because someday he not only will give an assessment, we will give an account of our life, won't we? We'll stand before him. We really will. It's more real than the seat you're sitting in. That we really will, and the Bible calls it the Bema Seat of Christ. We'll actually stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and give an account for our lives. What is wood? What is hay? What is stubble? And only those things that were done in purity through the power of the Holy Spirit, will actually remain. That actually winnows a lot of things away, doesn't it? We'll all stand there, and he'll be looking at our life, and he's looking at it now. And if you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, What God Sees Matters. What God Sees Matters. Do you believe that? We're, always, we're, we're more concerned than we'll admit about what other people see. But God knows the heart. Hey, you'll actually be able to say, I'll see people say, I don't care what anybody thinks. And I know they care what other people think. Don't you know that when they say that? 
I don't care what anybody thinks. I just live exactly the way I want. Sure you do. No, we care. But the closer we get to God, the less we will care and the more we will draw near and care what he sees, how he assesses, what he's looking at when he sees our heart and our life and our minds. We'll look at three things this morning uh, that we see in the scribes, but we also see in this widow. The first, a desire to be seen. The second, a desire to acquire. The third, a desire to give all. And this desire to be seen... We see the scribes here, and Jesus says, beware, beware of the scribes. And they had, they had some political power, they had some authority, they had some leadership. And this desire to be seen was the fabric of their life. This is the desire to be seen and thought of highly by men. A lot of people want this, right? They want to be thought of in a great way. They want to be really well esteemed. You know, the higher up the celebrity are, they want more Twitter followers than anybody else. They want more Instagram followers than anybody else. They want to be on the front cover of Time magazine or the front cover of People, although sometimes I don't think they want to be on the cover of some of these as they end up, but that, uh, that's for dis- different decisions in life. But the scribes, it wasn't a desire to be seen and appreciated by God, but it was to have the attention and the approval of other men. And this warning by Jesus is given to the disciples. He's warning the disciples and he's warning all the people around him. If we were standing in the temple and we would have heard Jesus said, and he says, beware of the scribes. First of all, this didn't, probably didn't settle real well with the scribes, right? Because they're standing there too. But beware of them was given disciples, and it was given to the other people that were gathered there in the temple. And the warning is given for two primary reasons. Jesus is giving the warning for two primary reasons. Some of them you might have instinctively already thought of. The first one, the first reason that he's given this warning is, don't become like them. Right? It's like a parent's warning your kids. Don't do what all the other kids at school are doing. Why do you give that warning? Don't become, the Bible says, bad company does what? Corrupts good character. So first warning is just don't become like that. Just because everybody else goes that direction doesn't mean that you are to go that direction. The second reason, as he's warning, is don't follow after men like that. Don't follow after men that desire a name. Men that are full of pride. Don't follow their spiritual guidance because they have none worth following. True? Those are two reasons. Don't become like them and don't follow after them. Let's look at their characteristics and wanting to be seen. Uh, Well, they crave attention and approval. You ever seen someone that just loves attention? You ever seen that? You got that one person at work one person in the family just craves attention. Now, you can get away with, or you can have that person that craves attention, and they can be just kind of, a, you know, maybe kind of rub you the wrong way if they're kind of a peer level. But it's interesting that some of the people that crave attention that reach higher levels, people flock to them. At a peer level, we're kind of put off by it. But we see people that are, have reached celebrity status or some level of authority that crave attention, 
and people, we call it in this country, cult of personality. We gravitate to people that also crave attention, and they're not actually, they don't rub people the wrong way. And matter of fact, they have a gravitational pull. It's interesting. At the peer level, it usually bothers people. But once people reach a certain level of status, people are actually attracted to it. Charisma. It's charisma is not always wrong, but I'm just saying that generally speaking, uh, some people, even the, uh, we talked about the political state right now, can't even win a certain office level in this country unless you have a certain medal of attractability, which has nothing to do with character, does it? Nothing to do with character. There was nothing about Jesus' appearance that you would vote for him. Do you realize that? The Bible says there was nothing comely about him. He would be a bad candidate to run for office because you would look at him and say, oh, he's not, not as good looking as I expected. I'd like him a little bit taller. He doesn't give off quite as much aura as I want. What if I told you he was completely honest, completely loving, completely giving, and he'd give his life for you? Would that matter? No, no, I'm looking for someone better. Right? But these are the scribes. They're full of bad character, but now they reach a certain level that people actually will follow them, will listen to them. These scribes, though, they would humbly tell you they don't really want attention. We don't like the attention. They would say that. We don't really like all the attention. Please give us more attention in the back of their minds. We don't really like, uh, we don't like the um, flattery that you guys are giving us. We're just humble servants of Moses. Please, please keep complimenting us in their minds. Oh, you don't really need to give up your seat for me. Give up your seat. Right? You don't need to call me rabbi. Yes, you do. In their mind. The mouth says one thing. Jesus calls this what? Hypocrisy. The mouth is saying one thing, but the heart is saying something completely different. And there's four characteristics, if you're taking notes, uh, of their outward show that Jesus identifies here. Four things that he mentions. First, he says, beware of the scribes who go around in long robes. What is this all about? Jesus mentions their long religious robes here. Now, long robes aren't in and of themselves wrong. Remember, the priesthood has been given a command to wear certain dress. Although the scribes are not priests, uh, they, they work for the Pharisees, but the priesthood was given robes by the Lord to wear, but they were to bear, they were to bear, the robes were to mark their humble service to God, not to show we're actually better than all the rest of the people. Do you see the difference? The robes were to show humble service to the Lord, not put them in a place of, look at the rest of you, spiritual lightweights. They had the long robes. And so what does this tell us? Well, they were also, these men, because they weren't of the priesthood actually, uh, they preferred a life of leisure, and they wanted to be seen and noticed as super spiritual. Today, this outward appearance could be a lot of things. It's distorted in so many ways. Uh, it, could, it could be people's clothing, what they wear, still clothing people use to project an outward appearance. Could be the car people drive. Could be the house. Could be any number of other possessions. These things all project some type of outward appearance. It can also be pseudo-humility. You ever seen that? Where people actually dress a certain way to look really humble rather than just kind of meet people where they're at, it can be really a, a form of going the other way. Imagine if you say, I'm going to start dressing like John the Baptist. 
his unique style of clothing ought to get, get people to understand how humble I am. Well, that would be kind of a, uh, a novel approach, pseudo-humility, but also uh, just kind of, you know, you might see some of these ministries that dress what I would call loud and proud, draw a lot of attention to oneself. What would be pseudo-humility for you and I? What would it mean to, to, to uh, kind of live and act in such a way that you draw a lot of attention to yourself? I mean, even, even um, you know, you, you think of uh, dress, it matters. I mean, the Bible talks about a modest approach. That we're, that we're actually to be relatable to people, not putting ourselves on a pedestal above people. Or be a distraction to people. Outward appearance means everything to these scribes. It's style over spiritual substance. Style over spiritual substance. They have the style. They have something that they're known for that's not inwardly a match. Are we fixated? Think about it, Christian. Are we fixated on our outward appearance? Or, instead of being fixated on our outward appearance, are we actually sensitive to the inward work of the Spirit of God? Fixated on the outside or sensitive to the inside? I'm not saying that the outside has no value. It's a good thing to cut your hair and shave and all that kind of stuff. It's really a good thing. We even looked at it in Ezekiel that the priesthood uh, in the new millennium, the priesthood, they have beards, but they have to be neatly trimmed and their hair neatly trimmed. So God actually, that there is some sort of uh, emphasis that God puts on, on having some kind of order and structure not look like pig pen running around either. But at the same time, not making your dress or your outward appearance or the possessions you have be your status. This is who I am because of, I've got the guy riding the horse right here. Now, younger people really struggle with this, don't they? I cannot wear that. It doesn't have a certain logo, right? Status means a lot. And even in our country, or I should say in our day and age. So first, their outward appearance was paramount. Number two, if you're taking notes, he says, they desire to go around long roads, goes on and says, they love greetings in the marketplaces. What does that mean? Well, they look for public, verbal affirmation of their status. It's not just enough to have status. They need to know everyone else knows they have status. Affirmation of it. Pats on the back. You guys, Jerusalem would be in a mess without you guys. We're so privileged to have your presence here in the marketplace, here at the bank, here at the office. Anywhere you go just kind of graces our environment. They benefit from the training of those that had gone before them. See, the scribes before them had taught the people, this is the way you greet us when we come around. So other people had already kind of laid the groundwork, so as they're raised up in their role as scribes, they kind of continue the norm. This is how you are to uh, respond to us. This is how you are to greet us. This is how you are to meet us out and about. They've trained people to esteem them. They've trained people to flatter them. How about us? Are we fishing for compliments in life? Right? Sometimes you'll notice with other people, you kind of, I think they're fishing for a compliment. 
Sometimes I'll give it to them anyway. I'm like, you really need a compliment, I can tell. I'm going to go ahead and give you one. You're fishing for one, I'll give you one. Isn't it great to get them when you're not fishing for them, though? When somebody loves you just because they love you? That you're not fishing for a compliment, you're just, you're just living sincerely, and someone says, man, I really appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your life. I appreciate your family, whatever it may be. I appreciate what you do. Or, hey, you look, you, know, I lo- you look nice today. I mean, there's nothing wrong with compliments, but these guys were always fishing for, seeking for, always desiring to have the attention, to have the greeting, always looking to be somebody. The compliment you really want is from Jesus. Is he the one looking down and saying, you're on the right track? Well done. The third thing that he mentions here, they not only love uh, the long robes and the greeting in the marketplace, they love the best seats in the synagogues. What does this mean? Well, they like to be prominently visible in all situations, especially when there's other power people there. Power people love to actually have even more status among other power people. Have you ever been in a room where you have several high... high, When I was in the business world, I I was fascinated by some meetings. I've mentioned it before. I'd be in meetings where I would actually see five alphas in the same room. They all had... It was a competition. I went to Harvard. I went to Yale. I, I have this boat. I have this. It's just a constant, it's, it's really, there's a desire to be really seen as special, the smartest person in the room, the most intelligent, uh, you know, the, the wealthiest. Well, the scribes, they weren't the wealthiest, and they weren't, you know, they weren't the, they weren't the, uh, the billionaires of their day, but they did wield quite a bit of power, and they did have a lot of influence. And so they would get to sit down beside, you know, the scribes would come in. They're religious leaders that would actually get the seat next to the CEO at the local company dinner where you have religion and business all together and politics. So you would have the scribes would actually say, hey, we've arrived. We've got the mayor. We've got the richest guy in town and me all sitting right here at the very best seats at the feast. So they had a desire to be part of the elite, to be part of that upper crust, what we might call the 1% or the 10% or whatever it may be. They had a desire to be visible. They liked and needed honor, and they needed to know that they were given a place of prestige. And Jesus said this this was the burning desire of their heart, to be looked at be appreciated. This is unlike it. I showed the men a couple of Saturdays ago. We had our men's breakfast here. I showed a little video of Dr. Adrian Rogers. Anyone ever heard Dr. Adrian Rogers on the radio? Great, great preacher, Bellevue Baptist in Memphis for years. And in the video, uh, it shows his life as a pastor. And he would never compromise on the Word of God, but it shows him like at one of the servants' dinner, and there he is with an apron serving meals to people in the church. Shows him in a prison yard, sleeves rolled up, tie on, sweat, and there he is preaching to convicts that look nothing like him because he had a servant's heart, but
but this wasn't the scribes. Those kind of things would be beneath them. They weren't going to be serving someone else a meal. You would be serving them a meal. And Jesus actually modeled this. Remember, just before he goes to the cross, he rolls up his own sleeves, and what does he do? He washes the disciples' feet. He was not looking for a high place at the feast. He was looking to wash the feet of people. Ephesians 6, 6 says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We're not to desire uh, the esteem. I, I never, uh, a story that um, William Booth tells uh, the salvation, I mean, he started the Salvation Army. One of the guys that got saved was a highly successful doctor. Highly successful doctor, made great money, lived in one of the best homes in London, and he comes out of this Christmas like uh, party, which was all the lavish elites of London, and he looks across the street, and there's a bunch of poor people with the Salvation Army signs trying to reach people for Christ, and he tells the group that he's with all the wealthy other doctors and lawyers and all the business people, and he says, I have to leave. My people are over there. And he walked across the street and joined them. And see, that the scribes couldn't do that. They, wanted, they yearned to be invited to the big fancy parties of London. They didn't want to be down there ministering to people. Jesus would go to the down and out. He would go to the complete worst parts of town, lepers, prostitutes, drunkards. That's where he went. But this wasn't their heart. They wanted, they wanted the place in society. Number four, he says, and the best place, and then um, the best places at the feast, the best place in the synagogues, but also the best place at the feast. They project. Um, I'm sorry. The fourth one again, verse forty-seven, and he says, and they make these long prayers as a pretense, long public prayers. They project an air of spirituality. Not only would they be invited to the mayor's luncheon and have the seat, but the mayor would say, Scribe so-and-so, please lead us all into the throne room of God. And so the guy who would stand up in the long robes and say, Fellow elites, I wouldn't say that, all you business people, all you politically connected, Please bow your heads while I bring us into the presence of God. <laughs> you've, heard the, you've heard the way they speak. They present themselves as far more spiritual than they really are. Because God's not even, God's looking down saying, what? You and I don't even have a relationship. How are you going to lead them into the throne room? You'll be better off getting one of my fishermen who's over on the hill with Jesus. He can lead you into the throne room of God. But not these guys. Ray Comfort is a great evangelist, the street preaching, all this stuff. Ray talks about Christians who will try and impress you with branches. They'll try and impress you with branches, but branches aren't fruit. You can fool a lot of people with branches. It can look good from a distance, but Jesus never said, Hey, I love your branches. Cursed a tree that had no fruit on it. That tree had plenty of branches. Branches are works. Branches are outward show. Fruit is something you can actually bite into and be nourished by. You'll never be able to eat a branch. Don't tell me cinnamon comes from bark. I know that, but uh, <laughs> it's not fruit. Let's look at the next. Let's look at the next thing. If you're taking notes, a desire to acquire. What is it that the scribes, what is it that they were doing where Jesus says here, 
They devoured widows' houses. What does that mean? They devoured widows' houses. Well, the scribes, they often served as what we might would consider today estate planners. They were highly educated. Uh, They were uh, obviously very knowledgeable about the law and the Old Testament. Uh, They were good writers, organized, structured individuals. Yes, they had a heart bent on public profile, but they, they were bright. And so they were looked to, in a lot of ways, for wisdom and guidance, but they would be oftentimes tapped for estate planning, widows that have lost their husbands. And these women, still grieving over their husband's death, they were easily manipulated in these times of grief. Easily manipulated. Now, in the, in the Middle Eastern culture, when someone dies, the grieving is far more intense than what you'll see here. I mean, there's really a weeping and a grieving. These scribes would come in, you know that we are officers of God, and we'll help you put your house in order. And they would easily manipulate into giving portions and perhaps sometimes even the entire estate means that they would eventually, if not immediately need in their life, they would turn over to these scribes. Needs means that they would need to sustain themselves would actually enrich these scribes. And these scribes, they would promote their own ministry. The scribes, any teachers of the law during the time of Christ, they were not allowed to receive a salary, but they could receive free will gifts. But they had actually turned this into a bit of a racket, receiving these gifts. They'd convince these widows to give to them to ensure that God would take care of them. You give mightily to us, God will take care of you. And they used that as a, manipula- as a form of manipula- manipulation, a deceptive, a deceptive scam. Second Peter speaks about uh, religious uh, leaders who do these kind of things. In 2 Peter 2.14, he said, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. Peter had seen it firsthand, and he's writing about it. He knows what this looks like. Warren Wearsby said, of all the rackets, religious rackets are the worst. And we expect the mafia to act like the mafia, right? We expect the mafia to actually say, we're going to demand and coerce you into giving this protection money. We expect you know, gangs to act like gangs. We expect communist governments to act like communist governments. But we should not expect anyone that names the name of God to act like that. Yet the scribes were using manipulation and forms of deception. And this is still a problem today. Uh, sometimes it's very calculated. You'll see, sometimes you've seen like on something on 60 Minutes or on 48 Hours or one of these shows where they say, uh, Pastor so-and-so or leader so-and-so had come up with an elaborate scheme. You're like, how in the world did anyone buy into this? How did people follow this? Sometimes it's very calculated. Oftentimes, it's really just really, really bad theology. Really bad theology that I don't think, I mean, people were trained in a certain way. They were taught it. Their, they were, their grandfather taught it to them, and found the bad theology passed down. And this theology can use guilt. It can use fear or the prospect of miracles in your life if you do such and so. You ever heard this? It makes promises of health. You've seen these people go to these healing, uh, healing services and just desperate for, and they say, you know, you put... 
uh, $100, you'll get healed from this. You get $150, you'll really get healed. Well, $200, boy, nothing's going to be wrong with your body. This is, this, this is no different than when the Roman Catholic Church introduced indulgences. I mean, it's the same kind of manipulation or prosperity. That Hey, you, you, you do this, you give to this ministry in such a way, you're going to be wealthy and prosperous. You're going to finally get a Mercedes-Benz. And not a used one, a brand new one. Nowhere we see this in Scripture. Some of the television ministries um, are more like nonstop fundraising telethons. You ever seen them? I can't watch them for long. You know, God, as Pastor Chuck used to say, God doesn't beg for money. There's needs. God said, I need a free will offering for, to build in the tabernacle. Didn't he? As a matter of fact, the children of Israel, the way they started out of Egypt, God, God loaded them all down with a bunch of Egyptian wealth, and he turned around and said, all right, free will offering to build a tabernacle. But he didn't beg. He just simply said, here's a free will offering. He didn't run around and beg and plead because God actually owns everything. So these ministries that are nonstop begging telethons, fundraising, it's, it's a poor reflection of the God we serve. Rather than giving out, they're gouging, these uh, scribes here. Rather than giving, they're grieving the Holy Spirit. And again, we see ministries still doing this today. Some pastors and teachers themselves uh, in America, not just America, but around the world, different ministries, they're now living in lavish houses, driving expensive cars, accumulating possessions and popularity. While little old ladies watching TV who are balancing their checkbook with Social Security and just a little bit of money are actually the ones that are keep watching and write another check to these guys. Jesus has a heart for those widows. He had a heart then, and he has a heart now for them. They're unwittingly taking their finances and financing these charlatans' lifestyles. And by the way, nowhere in the Bible do we see Jesus, do we see any prophet, do we see any apostle say to get into the ministry so you can become rich. If you can find a verse, show it to me where God uses an apostle, a prophet, or Jesus himself say, hey, if you want to get rich, get into the ministry. You won't find it. They have to go and use David and Abraham. David was a king, and Abraham was called to make a nation out of him. They weren't in the ministry per se, but God certainly used them. But again, that's you understand the timing and how God does things in the Bible. There's reasons for even those things. But now as Jesus is concluding his observations of the scribes and their self-centered and dishonest lies, he then looks up and we turn our attention. He looks up and he turns his attention to the rich who had come to place gifts into the treasury. So he's still saying in the temple, he's just giving this kind of warning and scathing review of the the, the manifestation of what comes out of the scribes in their life. And then he looks up and he sees the rich in the temple. You know, there was a treasury and, and, and you could see people actually coming to bring their offering. And there was a lot of fanfare with the rich because they also liked to be seen for what they were doing. The first thing to recognize here is that Jesus 
He's fully aware of everything given or not given to God. He's fully aware. It says he looks up and he sees. He sees the widow. He sees the rich. He is aware and he's watching everything given, everything taken, as we've seen with the scribes, and everything withheld. The eyes of God see the very thoughts and intents of the heart, don't they? He didn't need to even physically be there to see all this. God sees it all. A group of children were lined up in the cafeteria of a Christian school for lunch. And at the head of the table where the the food line is was a large pile of apples. And there was a note posted by the apple tray, and it said this, Take only one, God is watching. Moving further along the lunch line, at the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. One child whispered to another, Take all you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) Many adults have this mentality, don't they? Many adults have the mentality that God watches some things but not others. God cares what I do here, but he doesn't care what I do over here. When he actually watches it all. He watches the apples and the cookies and the lasagna in the middle and all the other stuff. Many adults have a mentality, even Christians, that God has this limited scope on their life. That there's some things that God doesn't really care about in my life. He's in charge of this stuff and I'm in charge of all this stuff. Now understand, Jesus sees not only the gifts of the rich, not only this poor widow, but he sees all those in between, and he sees the attitudes and the temperature of the heart in these matters. Not just what, but why. It's a good thing, understand also, it's a good thing, and it's an expected thing of the Lord, that all that follow God... Regardless of their financial level, it's expected by God that everyone would be a giver, that would give to the Lord and give to his work. God expects that from everybody. Why? Because giving's a form of worship. It's a form of worship. Or at least that's God's heart. That's his heart is what it would be. That giving should be as much a form of worship as prayer is, as singing praises to God, as maybe fasting for something. All of these are forms of worship. Giving is as well. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul writes, God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful giver. Not a prideful giver. Not a pseudo-humble giver. Not a begrudging, I can't believe God's taking my money again giver. When it actually all belonged to him anyway. As I've mentioned many times, giving is not just financial. You guys agree with that? Giving is not just financial. Although, remember, finances always represents time because we're paid for our time in life. So even your money ultimately represents time. But uh, giving is not just financial. It's also our time, probably primarily our time. And it's our gifts and it's our abilities, talents God's given, that we do what? That we give back to him in gratitude. We're giving back our I say, Lord, you blessed, I want to bless back. You've given, I want to worship you and give it back. Whatever it is, time, talent, and treasure. And this is an act of obedience as well. Worship is always an act of obedience. So, but Jesus sees, he sees these wealthy temple goers, and 
He sees them dropping their gifts into the treasury. And many are impressed by the chunk of change that they're throwing in. A lot of people are like, did you just see what so-and-so gave? That's more than I'll make this year. Wow. They are super spiritual. They're almost as spiritual as the scribes. It's like scribes here and then the guy that just gave that offering. Boy, it's, a, it's like, who's going to get the better seat in heaven? We already know they get the best seats locally at the feast. But in heaven, they're even going to get even better seats. That's what might th- some might think. But Jesus is not impressed, isn't he? He's not impressed. He's not impressed at all. By the way, in my 21 years of knowing the Lord, I've seen Christians who have no problem writing checks. Some. I've seen many Christians who do have a problem writing checks. But I've seen some Christians who have no problem, none, writing checks. They have a lot in their checking account, and they have no problem writing checks. They'll write a check for things. But they don't give grace. Some of them I've met. They don't give much grace. They don't give much love. And they're very selfish with their time. I'm not talking about all. I'm saying I've seen Christians that writing a big check is not a problem for them. But their heart doesn't still reflect the Lord. Now, I've seen other Christians that do. That they not only write big checks, but they have big love in their heart. They have uh, grace. They really care. They would be like uh, you know, the Good Samaritan. They would stop and pull over and help someone who's really... In- but I've seen both, and so have you in your lifetime. So writing checks is not always an impressive thing to God. God has always had people, sees people that can do that. But Jesus, he looks past the wealthy. He looks past what they're dropping in the plate. He looks past the wealthy. And he sees this widow who gives two mites. You, you, you wonder what two mites is? Do you wonder? Well, even if you didn't wonder, I'm going to tell you anyway. A denarii, we talked about last week. Remember, the, it has Caesar's image on it. A denarii is a full day's wages. You work a full day, a denarii is worth a full day's wages. One mite equates to about 1% of a denarii. So two mites is about 2% of a day's wage. This would be enough to get by a couple of crumbs. Not much at all. And yet Jesus said she gave more than anyone else. She gave more than all of them combined. He said she gave more than all. All of them combined, she gave more than them. He looked at the what? proportion, not the portion. The proportion was 100%, not the portion. The rich, they've spent a lifetime acquiring wealth. They have so much financial abundance that dropping a large gift in the treasury has no impact on their lifestyle. Does that make sense to you? This is why you can be amazed that so-and-so gave a million-dollar pledge to the St. Jude's Hospital or built a tennis court and the worst part of town for so-and-so. And even though that's great, I'm, not, I, I, I'm, I'm glad when those things happen. I'm glad when the hospitals get the donate. I'm glad when they build a tennis court in a bad part of town and say, hey, we want to build a park here. That's good stuff. But the people, a lot of times, that can write those checks, it has no bearing on their lifestyle. And Jesus knows that. They can still live at the same comfortable level. In fact, a highly visible, think about this in the time of Christ, a highly visible gift, a highly giveable public gift, treasury where everybody sees you do it, actually could improve their finances because of the tight connection between the religious, political, 
business establishment. That makes sense? It's all interconnected at times among these social elites. Don't forget that Jesus had done what? Just recently, he had cleared out the money changers from where? The temple. He had taken the business out of. He said, get the business out of here. He had cleared the business out. And those were authorized by the temple priesthood. If you go to Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, I can put this up here real, for, real quick for you. See the temple here? You see all these mansions? This is a replica of exactly what Jerusalem looked like based on Josephus' writings and others. Uh, the rich, these were massive mansions. These were the Jewish rich elite. Uh, these were also Jewish uh, as well, but they were the poor or the middle class, and even the poor could even be in worse areas. But you can see that the, the temple's here, and a straight line from the temple to all of these incredible mansions that are walled. It's a gated community on both sides. It has the wall of, just like the temple, it faces east towards the Mount of Olives. It actually has the, uh, the wall of the city here, and it has the wall, the gated community here. So the rich could not, they did not have to leave their palatial, perfect, Comfy environment, they could walk straight through the rich community, right into the temple, leave the temple, and go right back in, and never have to walk to the squalor of the rest of the lowlifes and go present their gift. But the only place that those people would see them doing it would be inside the temple saying, wow. Highly visible gift connected with all the other leaders. See, the rich, they had possessions and means. But were they rich towards God? Not all the rich. I mean, I'm not, this isn't a, a. There's rich people that love the Lord. Understand? Some of you, maybe some of you in here are rich. I doubt many of you are, but there's rich people that love the Lord. But Jesus is. He understands the society, understands the landscape, and they had these possessions. They had the wealth, but were they rich towards God? Jesus said in Luke, 19, Luke chapter twelve, verse nineteen, that one is a fool who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich towards God. Amen? That's Jesus' words. If you're not rich towards God, everything else will fade away. David Living said, I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. David Livingston, of course, he would die giving his life for the Lord there in Africa. No value on anything he possess except for in relation to the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. How about you, Christian? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you hunger and thirst for the things of this world and more of them? Do you have more possessions and stuff? Or are you increasing in measure of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or are you just increasing in stuff? Tozer said, it may be said without qualification... Every man is as holy and as full of the Holy Spirit as he wants to be. Let me read that again to you. Tozer said, It may be said without qualification that every man is as holy and full of the Spirit as he wants to be. So Jesus looks at the heart. You have a lot of possessions, and he can say, but you have a lot of the Holy Spirit. Look at one versus the other. I want to close with this last this last point, a desire to give all. We see here the greedy and covetous scribes and their love for money, their love for acquisition, their love for public 
appreciation and applause of men. We see the rich, they continue to give, but there's no sacrifice in their giving. According to Jesus, they gave out of their surplus. Not a big deal for them. It's a tax write-off. It's not that he's not impressed. Then there's this widow. She gives the last two mites she had. I don't know about you, but I would call this desperate, reckless faith. How about you? This is just desperate, reckless, yearning. Most of you in this room are not rich. Maybe, again, I don't, I don't know any of you, what's in your bank account or anything like that. I don't even see our financial statements. Only Mike uh, sees that stuff, and I have no idea what you give, what you make. I have no idea. Most of you probably aren't rich. Most of you, it's not a simple thing to write a check. Most of you, like me, it really takes faith every time you write it. Right? And that's the real world. Most people, it takes some belief that, Lord, you will do something with this, and I'm worshiping you with it. Most of us live in that world. But this lady, she lived in that world more than I can comprehend. Two mites and gives it all? David said in 2 Samuel 12, 24, Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. David knew that offerings by nature are to be sacrificial. David actually had wealth too. But he knew that it had to be sacrificial. He had, had to cost him something. But this offering, it cost more than a lot for her. It cost everything. I don't even have that kind of faith. Do you? I mean, would you really go and empty everything you have and give it to God today? Every single thing. This was the faith test that Jesus had given the rich young ruler. Remember, back in Luke 18, he told the rich young ruler, hey, you, you want to be rich to God? Go ahead, sell everything you have and come and follow me. He couldn't do it. He couldn't trust God to improve his life, and he went away sad. But this lady, she wasn't looking for God to improve her life. She was desperate, and she had nobody in the world to trust and cling to but God. And so she does what? She throws herself at his feet. It's a form of just throwing herself at his feet. Many people don't need God. In their minds, therefore, they don't need faith or surrender. They say, I don't need God. I've got the education. I've got my abilities. I've got a good job. I've got a pension coming. I've got this. I've got that. I don't really need God. Well, I might need him if I get cancer. I might need him if I develop heart disease. But if those things don't happen, I really don't need him. That's not where this lady is. She's desperate. See, poor widows are desperate. People with incurable diseases, they become desperate. People that are heartbroken, they become desperate. These people need a touch from God. They need to be helped. They need to be rescued. And then it becomes not so much of a crazy idea to say, I'm just going to throw it all at God's feet. The Bible says, cast your bread upon the waters. Right? Cast it out there. It's a form of taking a step of faith. It's also a form of worship. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. She knew she needed God's help. Great needs produce what? Great repentance. Great needs produce genuine prayers. Great needs produce complete surrender. God he hears and sees a sincere heart. The eyes of God, they're not only on the sparrows outside, right? His eyes on the sparrow. 
but he's also on those that have needy and desperate crying out for help. We have an interesting contrast here between the widows of 20, verse 47, the widows whose houses were devoured and manipulated and deceived into giving what they couldn't afford. We have an interesting parallel between them, or a contrast between them and this widow. Because God's not asking for her. He's not manipulating her like the scribes were. He's not saying, hey, give every might you have. No, they were deceived into giving their money as the scribes would do out of fear of manipulation. This widow, who herself may have been one of those defrauded, understand that Jesus tells the story, she might have been one of the defrauded widows. She is giving not out of manipulation, but in devotion to God, in desperation knowing that only God can save and help her. Only God will save and help. No one else there is showing any compassion on her, Right? You didn't see the rich saying, hey, you know what? Instead of actually throwing this big check in, why don't I go help her out? No one's doing that. So she cries out to God. They were deceived into giving money out of fear of manipulation. But not her. She's reaching out to God. And God doesn't miss the moment, does he? In the form of Jesus, he does not miss this moment. He sees it. And through Christ... He notes her offering as more than everyone else there. God sees it. She's fully surrendered to the will of God. Listen, Christian, and this is pretty cool. We're going to have to wait till we get to heaven to hear the rest of the story. I don't think it ends here. How about you? Jesus, Luke only records this much. We're going to have to wait to get to heaven to hear the rest of the story because I think there's more of God's grace and there's more of God's mercy that's poured out on her life after this fact. And that's not recorded in Scripture. But you'll get to meet her if you're saved. And she'll tell you the rest of how it went. Yeah, the two might thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you how the rest of it goes. Oh, the rich. Yeah, they were there that day. They had a lot of, yeah, oh, yeah. Lots of, a scribe, yeah, the scribes were there. Yeah, they're a piece of work. Um, <laughs> I'm speaking for it for just a moment. But two things we can safely say as we come to a close, two things we can safely say about this widow. One, she loved God more than anything else. How about us? How about you? Number two, whether she knew it or not, she made a huge deposit in the bank of heaven. A massive trillion-dollar deposit in the bank of heaven, and Jesus notes it down and says, this one's going in the record books more than everyone else here. C.T. Studd, that's why he gave up his fortune to serve people in China. He gave up all his money. He, he could have been rich. He, was, he, was, he inherited wealth. He gave it all away to say, I'm put in the bank of heaven where there's way better interest. Let me just read for you one passage. I know you know, but I wanted you to understand it in a different context maybe, and you've heard it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 and 30. You know this passage. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do you know that this woman will be some of our bosses? She'll be the boss of some of us in the millennium reign of Christ. 
She may not have had much power in this, but in the millennium reign, some of us in this room will see massive demotions in the millennium reign of Christ, and some will see massive promotions. Now, getting to heaven is the, you know, that's that we all want to make sure we're there, but Jesus is there is going to be rewards given. And some of the last that everyone said, hey, this person, she never did much of anything. God says her, she was a prayer warrior that gave like nobody's business. You actually rule a nation. And then somebody who was actually the deacon at so-and-so church that gave big checks has a low-level position. God says that the heart wasn't there. They would give, but they had no love for people. There was no desire for, you know, there was no desire for the word of God. There was no prayer life. That's what Jesus is saying. A hundredfold for some that have left houses. That's why Peter and them said, Lord, we left all to follow you. And Jesus said, don't sweat it. I'll pay you back. Do you believe that? That we'll stand before the Lord someday, and there will be rewards given. And this woman, she made a big deposit. See, Christian, God sees it all. And he sees what truly matters. Let me ask you, does he see us as givers or does he see us as takers? Does he see us as selfless or selfish? Surrendered or stubborn? Compassionate or cold and careless? Sacrificial or superficial? Desperate for more of God or determined to be as comfortable and uninterrupted as possible? That was, remember the the homes there? Just they were determined to be as comfortable and uninterrupted. Do not bother us. This is my Saturday. Do not touch it. This is my life. This is my week. This is my weekend. This is my life. This is my whatever it is. I don't need to be bothered. I'll see you on Sunday, and I'll put a check in the box. Don't worry. That was, that was the mentality of some. That wasn't the widow. That wasn't what Jesus was asking his disciples to be. The scribes and the widow, what a difference between the two. See, Jesus is watching. He's calling all of us to take up our cross and have the heart of the widow. Amen? He wants to have the same heart, fully surrendered. We mentioned this on Friday night in our uh, Friday night fellowship. See, God, God wants worshipers, not workers. Tozer said this. God wants worshipers. Worshipers that say, Lord, we want more of you. God can get anyone to do a task. He can get anyone to write the checks. You know, every pastor I've met, any ministry that's ever been formed, usually loses some of the biggest givers out of the gate. Because God says, I'll always build it on my righteousness, not on what people can see. But he wants us to be worshipers. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for calling us. Lord, you're not willing that any should perish, whether it would be the scribes, whether it would be the disciples, whether it would be the temple goers, whether it would be the rich. Lord, you've come. You were a giver. You gave your life. And Lord, the most natural response we can have is in gratitude to give it right back to you and to trust you, to trust you with our life, trust you with our time, to trust you with our talent, trust you with our treasure. But Lord, And then, Lord, by your Spirit to change us. Lord, we're naturally selfish. We're naturally complacent. We're naturally desiring, Lord, the best seats. But you've told us to take on a servant's heart, to humble ourselves, 
to step off of the natural throne of our heart and to surrender it to you. And Lord, we want to have a story that finishes in heaven like the widow, where you notice that we willingly gave and surrendered to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.